Hello, and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I am Eric Rasmussen. And today we're here with our guest, Dr. Ryan Engstrom. Dr. Engstrom is a professor in the Department of Geography at George Washington University, where he is the Director of the Data Science Program, Director of the Center for Urban Environmental Research, and Director of the Spatial Analysis Lab. Ryan has also shared his expertise with our community at a few WWHGD events, most recently at our Measuring and Mapping Neighborhoods webinar earlier this year. Thank you for joining us today, Ryan. It is great to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So could you tell us a little bit about some of your research interests? Okay. Um, Most of my research interest is basically looking at integrating geospatial technology, machine learning to map the human condition over a wide wide array of areas, looking at poverty, deprived areas, population modeling, all sorts of different things that we can use these geospatial tools and machine learning to go after. Now you've done a lot of work in Accra in Ghana for the past decade or so, and you've written some good papers around slums and identifying things that uh, you can see from space, things that happen on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about your relatively uncommon definition of deprived areas? What's that mean for you? <laughs> well, this is actually something that's come up over time. Um, as we've given presentations, we used to call them slums. And so typically like a deprived area is a slum. However, when you start talking to different researchers, different policy people, there's a lot of things that come with the term slum and there's specific definitions of it. And so what we've started to move to is instead of calling it a slum, we call it a deprived areas because that's a better description of what it is. And also, you know, it gets away from some of the derogatory or you know, social stigmas that are associated with the term slum. So we just simply call it a deprived area. Yeah, that's very interesting. I agree. I I really like the the change in description from slum to deprived area. So as you have done some of this research, uh, what has been some of maybe the more interesting insights that that you didn't expect through the years? Um, Most of the time, like you mentioned Accra, uh, in Accra, I actually spent a lot of time on the ground there. And this is where I kind of gained a lot of insight onto what these areas are like. And then putting it together of what we can extract from like satellite imagery or other geospatial data and kind of putting these two things together, Um, you know, having walked it on the ground and experienced it and then what we can derive out of it. It's kind of this has been one of those things where that really started to catalyze like my idea to be able to put these things together. And it's really good for us who spend a lot of time in front of a computer because that's mainly what I do is computer programming and stuff like that to actually go see these places. And so that was kind of the big eye-opening experience and just how welcoming the people were when you went there and, um, you know, what they're experiencing and and seeing it firsthand. That's really interesting. As it happens, my older daughter lived in Accra for a while and ran a farm and walked through those slums quite a bit. Um, And you asked an interesting question in one of your papers about do the most vulnerable people live in the worst slums? That's a really interesting question for somebody to address in your position. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
what we what we kind kind of came to realization is when you walk around and like if you just use this idea of a slum like we said earlier like you had slum or not a slum well you what you what you find when you go there is there's a whole range of what people are living in and so you know in terms of the conditions and what possible impacts they could have on them and so in Accra in particular flooding is a big issue in some areas but not in others and so you know what is their chances of you know being uh, impacted by these like large scale like floods and other issues where they're living and their conditions they're in so do you take this research of you know in, in the in this case flooding and, and potentially the the vulnerable populations that live in these flood areas what do you do with that information at that point, it, it all depends on the project um, and, and what we're trying to prove or what we're, we're interested in. Um, I mean, I've done some work with World Bank and Accra where we're interested in what, you know, what's the economic impact on these areas that flood um, and, you know, how hard is it for people to move out, you know, in terms of to because once you get impacted by it, it, it's a big economic impact on these people. And, you know, what kind of information can you provide for people to support these people to help them? That makes sense. Um, and we're just, uh, as we record, we are aware of a flood event in South Africa that displaced about 400,000 people. You did some really nice work talking about using geospatial data to um, assess the population and environmental balance. Um, can you talk for a second about that? Um, we've done it in all, all sorts of things. Um, one of the projects I worked on way back in time, we looked in Pakistan and we were trying to map population distributions and that was used in flood analysis. Um, you know, the impacts, how many people get impacted by this. It's pretty amazing when you go to uh, a number of places in the developing world, like sometimes how little information they have geospatially, especially at fine scales. Because what happens is these flood events are, are, happen to a relatively small area. And so it's hard for us if we have like large geographic units to determine how many people get impacted. So those are some of the things that we start to look for and go after. So that's very interesting. So when you talk about mapping, are, are you doing all of the mapping? Can you talk to the technical aspects of that? Uh, are you working with partners on the ground? Are there data sources you like to to pull in to better understand an area? It, it, it all depends on the project and, and the source of data. Um, the big thing I've worked with in the past is working with the actual census takers in the different countries I've worked in. So I've worked in Sri Lanka, Belize, Ghana. Um, and a lot of times what we what we're asking for is you know, availability of the census in a digital format that we can extract information from. Um, and that's really key to any of these projects is having good census information to start with. Um, and so getting access to those data is, is really key for all this. So you really delved deeply into that problem on some of your Arctic work. You looked at the, the dynamics of biomass and population. Um, those are areas that have relatively challenged um, collections of population data. We just held a webinar on that. Can you talk a little bit about that? In terms of where? 
Uh, I'm kidding. In terms of the Arctic, well, <laughs> the the general Arctic that you looked at. The general Arctic. I Mostly looked... Canadian, I think, right? No, actually. If most... you're taking us on a cruise around the world. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're going back to my... Uh, you're going back to my uh, long time ago uh, working in the Arctic. Most of my stuff has been in Alaska. Uh, recently, I've done a little bit of work in Russia. Um, and there, getting access to census data is a little bit tougher. Uh, you know, it's amazing how much data the people who live in the United States, how, how open and awesome the United States Census Bureau data is for what we use it for. And once you start going to other parts of the world, you realize just how much we utilize it uh, and how important it is for a lot of analysis we do. And um, you can't and, you know, it's amazing we give it away for free. Um, it's, it's a really important resource for a lot of things we do in terms of the type of work I do. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that's a phenomenal answer, because I feel like a lot of the guests that we've talked to who, who are doing work in remote parts of the world. It is the remotely sensed data and it is the survey data. Mm -hmm. And those two coming together and understanding that is, is some of the, the, it's the major puzzle piece, I guess I would say. You know, and you talk about surveys and the big, big issue with surveys is obviously you're not sampling everyone. And that, I mean, that's inherently in a survey. And so what you're trying to use is a satellite information to predict in those areas where you have very little information about. And so a census can provide you that validation. Do these models actually work? Um, and then how accurate are they to make the, the predictions that they're making? This is one of the things that I've really kind of pushed is like, how accurate are these predictions? I mean, it's better than nothing, uh, but like how good can you get it? And then how repeatable are these things as you move between areas? Right. And I, I think another piece to this we've heard through the years is in some places, even participating in a survey is something that is very hard to build the trust with the community so that community wants to participate in the survey. Have you experienced anything like that? Not really. I don't do the survey data themselves, but one of the things I have noticed is if you look at the spatial distribution. So I've gotten access to the actual geolocations of some surveys. They don't really get the super wealthy areas and they don't really get the super poor areas. And so, because, you know, I think they have a hard time connecting with the, the people who are living in the wealthy areas or going to the really poor areas. And so a lot of this data is this middle ground and it makes it hard for us who are trying to model this because you want those extremes. Uh, because if you create a model, like it's only going to go to whatever the range is in your data set, um, because that's what it assumes the natural range is. And are we capturing all of this? Uh, you know, you look at, let's say, housing prices and Accra, and there's some very rich areas that people are paying a lot of money, but you don't see many surveys that are actually taken in those areas. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. I, I would think that's probably the same challenge we would have in our own country. Right. Yeah, I haven't heard much about the extremes. That the fact that the the statistical sampling will really take the middle pretty easily, but and there will be people who really strive to get those who are the least um, surveyed um, on the low income side. But I hadn't thought much about how people avoid getting surveyed on the high end. I mean, you think about it like 
somebody like me, like if some survey, somebody calls you on the phone and wants to meet you with you and talk to you for two hours, are you really going to answer it? You know, um, and that's, and you look at some of these surveys and holy, it, it takes a lot of time to, to go through them because there's a lot of questions they ask. So before we got started on the show today, Ryan, you mentioned that you do some work with youth mappers. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and your role with youth mappers? <laughs> so youth mappers, uh, it's a program I, uh, I've been involved with since the beginning. Um, I'm on the steering committee of youth mappers and what youth mappers is it's funded by USAID. We currently have uh, 316 chapters around the world in, in 67 different countries. Um, and what they are is they're university chapters that do mapping and open street map and produce all the data, uh, produce some of the data that you can extract from open street map. And uh, this, it's this giant network where we're trying to bring you know, students and give them the opportunity to be able to both show their skills and also expand and get opportunities within the, the OpenStreetMap community and the geospatial community in general. Uh, very good. So that data then is all available through OpenStreetMap. Yeah, everything that we do with Youth Mappers is open source and OpenStreetMap. Yep. I think our listeners will be very interested in that for those who've not heard of the Youth Mappers before. I honestly did not know that there were over 300 chapters. Mm, that's incredible. Yeah, we we have, it, yeah, we started off with three of us. It was West Virginia University, Texas Tech, and George Washington, and and now we've expanded to over three hundred. That's a great opportunity for people who are just getting started in the idea. And OpenStreetMap has been friends of WWHUD for a long time. We we deeply admire the work that they've done. Um, and I understand that there is some intersection with USAID in there as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, USAID funds us. Uh, they fund they fund youth mappers, um, and they provide. So we run like leadership conferences, and we run um, research conferences. And USAID funds the students to travel to become part of this and work on all of these different projects. And, oh, what a terrific opportunity! Wow. Mm -hmm. So are these undergrads or graduate yeah. level students, or it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter, uh, but most primarily undergrads um, from any place where USAID is working um, and uh, even Europe and the United States. So we have chapters all over the place um, and they can all get funding and be able to go and be part of this ecosystem that we're integrated. And the age range, how, lo how low does it go? So if we have people, for example, who are teaching classes listening to this podcast who are teaching at the high school level or at the junior high school level and getting kids introduced to the idea of the geospatial sciences, um, is there room for them? So youth mappers in particular, we focus on the colleges and universities because that's where our chapters are. Um, there's other groups that do uh, that work at that, the high school level and uh, to be able to be part of it. And we do do trainings where we support those um, through like Geography 2050. Um, we, we, we do training there. Uh, we brought in, um, so some of the people that work with Youth Mappers have done training for that because we're kind of linked up through uh, Marie Price, who is the president of the AGS. She happens to have the office next to me and she's at GW as well. And so it's a small world. And so 
you know, we, we get those, those people involved up there. And so the education that you're going through right now with youth mappers, um, you're giving them an introduction to the geospatial sciences. You're probably teaching them tools. Can you talk a little bit about the tools that you're finding most valuable at the university level, at the college level? So at the university or college level, what we're mostly doing, um, and I'm moving more and more into, is, is programming in Python. And OpenStreetMap is, is kind of, you know, this is kind of the beginning of like, okay, how do you create, you know, drawings of buildings? How do you do the uh, basis of these things? And so what we actually start using is we extract data from OpenStreetMap to then train machine learning and deep learning models to make predictions in areas where we don't have data. And so that's what we've been working on is how do we extract that data? How do we use it to model things and make predictions in areas? Because the big limitation with OpenStreetMap is it's very accurate in some places and other places there's nothing. And so, you know, it's, 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 we can use modeling to fill in these gaps and use it and go after different, whatever we're interested in going after. So, you know, Ryan, the WWHGD is all about discovering, cataloging, and sharing openly available geospatial data. What about openly available models. Does something like this exist? Because I do feel a lot of our guests and our, our webinar panelists through the years have talked about, you know, having access to data in some areas, but not in others and having to, to model that. Is there a network of, of the ability to share um, some modeling capabilities? Pretty much all of that's on GitHub. Um, and so you just go on GitHub, you find a model that you're interested in, you can work through GitHub and be able to share it. And if it's open, if the modeler allows you access, then you can edit and add to it. And that's what GitHub is all about. Right. And is there a need for anything additional beyond GitHub? I know a lot of people do turn to GitHub, but is anything else, would it be useful to have a, another place um, to go where you know people are, are working in the same arenas that you are not really i mean everybody's pretty much on github and it's it's it works it works awesome uh and it's it's pretty amazing like what you're able to share and how well you're able to share it and, and be able to do that so i mean that's great to hear mm -hmm. i i am not a modeler yes and <laughs> so, i mean i will probably not be on github you won't see me out there but I, for our listeners i wanted to ask that question but, but i mean it, it's you know, you think about it in the last 10 years, how much all of this stuff has changed. You know, we have GitHub, we have OpenStreetMap, you have Google Earth Engine, you know, all this stuff is mm -hmm. AWS, you know, you know, all these different services where it used to be really hard to get data. Now it's, it's opening up and then people are putting data out there that, you know, we have never seen before and, you know, companies are getting involved. So it's, it's been a really big change in the last five, five years, six, maybe 10 years. Um, and it's, it's been fascinating to see, um, you know, I mean, it's crazy. I agree with you. I mean, that's, that's what we're all about in this community is, is sharing and, and leveraging each other, leveraging each other's work and, and partnerships and enabling everybody. Yeah, I mean, a, a great example of this is when I first started, we'll go back to Accra. When I first started working in Accra, there was nothing on Google Maps. You opened up Google Maps and it was blank. 
Now every road is mapped. You can go in and you can fly in and walk through these neighborhoods that we had to walk through in person. It's amazing, um, you know, how much it's changed, you know, because they drove the car around it and took all the images and it's it's phenomenal. And and we'll wrap up here in a moment, but you mentioned machine learning. and We don't hear that very often. You did some work, I think, in Belize that used machine learning for interpolation of those areas that weren't very well covered. Can you talk for a second about that? Yeah. So that work, we worked with um, the the actual Census Bureau in Belize, um, and they gave us access to their census data. And what we tried to do is use satellite data, geospatial data, and then they had a survey of income and we used uh, the covariates from all the geospatial and satellite data with the, with the survey data. And then we were able to make a prediction of income. So what is income levels in different units, census units across the country of Belize? Um, and so it's, it's a really cool project. We went down there and we showed them the models we used. We used all open source models and we gave them all the code to be able to do it. And so we kind of, you know, capacity building within country and to make predictions for them to going forward because somebody had made predictions for them years ago and gave them a PDF and they had no idea how to use it or, or create a map. And so now you, if you give them the tools and now we have platforms where we can share this. And so that's one of the big things that I think we'll, we'll see coming forward. It, it, they're, they're not easy to use now. It's not like point and click. But as we move forward, it might get easier and easier. And we'll be able to share this stuff. And, and people interactively will be able to, to go after this. And this is one of the things we're trying to work with the private area mapping too. Well, this has been a great discussion, Ryan. We loved seeing you today in the studio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This has been great. Please join us next week for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHGD, check us out at www.hgd.org, where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography data sets and access presentations and recordings from more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Terry Ryan. And I am Eric Rasmussen. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to leave us a review and rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share the show with your friends on social media. Thanks again for listening.